I trust you all found 1 Peter 4, verse 12. If that's the case, can we stand and read together? Uh, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if, and if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray. Lord, there are, um, these verses are jam-packed full of uh, information for us. But information not just for head knowledge, Lord, but for life application. And uh, I pray through your spirit that you'll Help me to reveal those truths to the church in a clear way that's um, easy to understand and maybe uh, might be new for some of us in terms of uh, thinking or maybe confirm thinking that we already knew was right. But we know where all of us are at in our lives today and this morning and I pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us individually for the things that we need to hear so that we can grow in our faith and grow in our ability to withstand our culture and to share the gospel with those around us. So we look forward to our time together. In Christ's name, amen. This is not in my sermon notes, but it's worth, worth mentioning for myself and uh, for the church. I don't want to single out these people intentionally, but I think I need to. Uh, it's exciting for me as a pastor to see Blake and Dylan and Jaden here by themselves <laughs> because uh, it, shows, it shows a commitment to the Lord outside of their parents. So that's a great, that's a great thing to see amongst young people. So yeah, cool. I'm sure you weren't expecting that, but uh, that's all right. Hopefully my boys will show up at church without me one day. <laughs> I know, I know, but I, <laughs> maybe they'll go to a different church. <laughs> and I'll be okay with that. All right, so welcome here. As you probably noticed based on the PowerPoint screen and the reading this morning, today's message about, is about suffering for Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure if you've studied the subject on your own or have any thoughts on this already, but no matter where you're at, uh, my prayer for you this morning is that by the end of the sermon, you'll be able to take away something new that you've not considered before. And so with that, I'd like to just jump right into verse 12. And I will just read it together. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. The first thing I want you to notice here is this comment by Peter of this fiery ordeal. What does he mean by this fiery ordeal? 
Well, there are pastors and scholars out there that believe this is a wordplay for Peter to make reference to the persecution that believers are facing under Emperor Nero. He was living around the time of Peter penned this letter. And some of you may know the history. Uh, at one time, in, uh, believers lived in the city of Rome and uh, fires were started in Rome. And they were started by Nero, who had an insatiable desire to build. And uh, he did it so he could, he brought the city down so that he could rebuild and make things more grandeur. What happened was he started to lose, uh, the, the, the people, although they didn't know for sure, suspected him of burning the city down. And so what they did was they, uh, the people started to sort of like, uh, he, he heard that they were sort of unhappy with him and he was losing popularity. And uh, he realized that he had to regain their favor. And so what he did was he scapegoated the Christians. He, uh, he blamed it on them for the fires that had started. And it started, started a wide persecution of the Christians. And these Christians were forced to flee. And this is how this church plant, for example, started that Peter's writing to. Uh, at, the, at the height of these uh, persecutions, like Nero would take uh, these uh, Christian people and... Uh, have animal skins and would put the people inside these animal skins, sew them up, and he would light them on fire as torches at nighttime to entertain the people for his garden parties he'd have at night. So, this fiery ordeal, people believe this is what the reference is to of these uh, Christian people. Uh, they were already marginalized in society anyway uh, for their beliefs in the Roman Empire, so this was a, a natural scapegoat for Nero. However, I'm not totally convinced this is what Peter's referring to by this. First of all, nothing within the letter suggests that the believers here were being martyred for their faith. There's no references in, the first, in any of the five chapters to martyrdom. However, our immediate context, or I should say secondly, our immediate context doesn't suggest this either. That there was this major physical hostility that we're facing. See, the persecution they were facing is defined in verse 13. It says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. So, one might think, well, that's death, because Christ ultimately died on the cross. But if you look at the life of Christ, he endured many other hardships outside of suffering on the cross. And we actually can see this even in verse 14. Because right after he says, to the degree that you've suffered, shared his sufferings, in verse 14 he says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So here, the, the, the reviling there is linked to the kind of suffering that's going on for these people. So I believe, based on the context, the fiery ordeal has something to do with the way these Christians have been reviled. And I, have, I believe it has something to do with the degree of the way they're participating in the sufferings that Christ has, has, endured, has endured outside of the cross. And if you look back on Jesus' life, you can see different areas in which he suffered hardship outside of just death. And you will notice that they parallel exactly what's going on in the letter of Peter. So let me give you some areas of persecution that these men, that Jesus suffered, and ultimately these Christians are suffering as well. The first area is verbal abuse. Verbal abuse. Um, Jesus was reviled, reviled, and the Greek word is to be insulted. So if you're insulted, uh, it also means to be mocked, to be made fun of. In Matthew 27:44, you remember this, and the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. Now, if you look at the verses before, in the same way as who? As the people who were watching the crucifixion occur, 
as well as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who were also mocking him there too. And if you go to chapter 2, verse 23, it says there about Jesus, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. So clearly, uh, believers were being insulted, they were being mocked, they were being verbally abused because of the relationship with Christ, and this is one way in which they were sharing in the degree of his sufferings. Jesus was also slandered. He was also slandered. The Greek word of slandering is to speak out against or to blab out especially in reference to speaking evil about somebody. Look at James 4.11, for example. Brothers, do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. If you look up the word evil against in, a, in accordance, and then you will find that the word is slander there. It's a, it's a synonym for slander. It's the same definition. Well, was uh, Jesus ever slandered or spoken evil about? <laughs> you bet. I'm sure you can think of stories in the Bible. But in Matthew 12, 24, remember a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute is brought to him, and Jesus heals him. And what do they say? Not thank you, Lord, you're a merciful great God. They say it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Speaking evil against him, they were called him satanic. They said, you're basically like Satan, your ability to do this. And um, completely, completely off base. Well, are these believers sharing in that degree of suffering? Are they being slandered as well? Well, of course they are. In chapter 2, verse 12, I'll read this to you. It says, keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, observe them and glorify God the day of visitation. So these men and women are in the same way sharing to the degree of suffering that Jesus Christ did. So that's verbal abuse in these two areas. Another way Jesus was, in, was, uh, was persecuted and suffered was through threats and intimidation. He faced that on more than one occasion. And again, I'm sure you can think of passages where this occurred. But I think specifically of John 5, verse 16 to 18. Jesus heals a paralytic man near the temple. And look at what is said following the healing. He did this on the Sabbath day. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In what way? <laughs> in his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I'm doing, I am too working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his God his own father, making himself equal to God. So they were seeking to kill him. They were threatening him. They were going after him to, to do this. I also think of John 11, verse 16. Remember, Lazarus has died, and Jesus has had to leave Jerusalem because his time had not yet come. Those were his own words. And uh, he tells the disciples he's going back to Jerusalem because Lazarus is dead. And Thomas believed when he heard those words, that was it for them. Jesus was dead. He was going to die. All the disciples were goners. And he said this, let us go that we may die with him. There's this belief in Thomas that to go back to Jerusalem was a death sentence. Why? Because they've already threatened him. They've been intimidating him with, with a life sentence already. Were these believers going through the same thing? You bet they were. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 14. 
I'll read this to you. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. How about the area of loss of friendships or people close to you leave you or abandon you because of your commitment to Christ? People you've mentored and cared for and they walk away from you because you're a truth proclaimer. Well, remember John 6, 66? Jesus fed thousands at the Sea of Galilee. He's told them afterwards he's the bread of life that gives eternal life. And then he preaches some hard truths about how to receive that eternal life. What's the reaction to the, of the people? This is a crazy one. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. We're not talking about the masses here of the thousands. We're talking about people who were committed to him and following him. And all of a sudden, at this one teaching, could not handle it and just walked away from him. That was it for them. We always think Jesus only had 12 disciples. He didn't. He had many. Remember he sent the 70 out? He had many disciples, but he had 12 intimate, close ones. But he lost people. He lost friendships. He lost people. They walked away from him who sat under his teaching. Now, I have no direct passage in the scriptures in the first five letters to, to show that uh, this happened to these believers. But no doubt this happened to these believers. If they experienced these things in other areas of life, and you look at the gospel and, and, and the, sorry, the letter here, there's no way they're going to go through life without any relationships being hindered. There's just no way. So it's important to understand that to share in Christ's sufferings and the degree in which this occurs cannot just mean death. It can't just be death, church. If it was just death, we have nothing to learn from this passage, right? There's nothing to learn from you and I. All of us have, we're alive. So we just have to close the Bible and go, well, this, we skip chapter 4 for us because it's not irrelevant to us. This is only for Iran and for Iraq and North Korea and places like that. But if you understand suffering in this way, if you understand it in this way, you can see that this has tremendous parallels for us. You know, <clears throat> after living my own life as a Christian and, and watching some of yours, I've watched you guys go through the same things. Eight years ago, I decided to church plant. Eight years ago. I've, I counted just out of curiosity, and I might have been missing a few. I've had ten people in eight years who I was once close to, mentored, was friends with, and who attended this church, walk away from me because of my connection to Jesus Christ. They, I was preaching truth, preaching truth, they walked away. I've seen Stuart at the gym lose a client over proclaiming truth in the, on the floor. Paying every month their dues, making a living from this person, one conversation, just one conversation about spiritual truths, and she didn't like it, walked away. I've seen my wife suffer severe tensions within, between her and family members from speaking truth. I know of a girl, and I've uh, even met her once from a church in Calgary. Right now she's seeking to get married. Her parents told her, if you don't marry a man from our culture, because she's not... Um, uh, I wouldn't want to like, give her identity away um, just in case you meet her one day, but she's not from our culture, okay? So, um, but the parents said, if you, don't, uh, if you don't marry a person, a man from our culture with our beliefs, uh, it, you're basically done with us as a family. 
This is a girl living in Calgary right now, not some remote place out in like, you know, Africa or something like that. I know a man who, personally, who knew it was necessary to speak hard truths to one of his parents. Truths that were going to, was going to potentially sever the relationship if the, if, the, if the conversation was to go sideways from the father's perspective. He knew that this was permanently going to sever the relationship if the parent took it negatively and could remove him from his life. The fellow went and did it anyway and proclaimed truth to the parent. Now, thankfully, the parent didn't sever the relationship, but he didn't know that going into the, the conversation. And these are, just, these are just four or five examples of my own life, and I'm sure if I were to ask you things, you could probably give me similar stories to things that are going on. See, these are all real ways of sharing in Christ's sufferings. And when we experience these forms of rejection, they truly hurt. They truly hurt. And we often, I mean, I do, I don't know about you, but we can often think in these ways like, well, where are you, God, in the midst of this? Don't you care? Don't you care that these people have walked away from me? Don't you care I was insulted? Don't you feel that I, don't you notice that I've been abandoned and potentially even cursed here? Well, this is why Peter's teaching becomes really important to us. Because he makes it clear that this type of thinking is not in line with God's perspective. To think that way is not in line with God's perspective. And he provides two profound insights into how we're to change our perspective in the midst of suffering. And the first one is found in verse 12. He tells us here that suffering is to be expected. It's to be expected. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be, think it's strange that something is happening to you. This is to be expected as a follower of Christ. Again, it's interesting because the opposite action, reaction often occurs within us, right? We could think, well, I can't believe that just happened to me, or I can't believe I just got treated that way for simply believing in Christ and living out my faith. But here's the thing, Jesus was never promised freedom from trials, so it should not be of no surprise we won't be either. I remember John 15, verse 18, when we studied this passage together, when we did, the, when we did this book, he said this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, and that's why the world hates you. But not only is suffering not to be expect, unexpected, it's got a purpose in God's mind. It comes upon us, he says in verse 12, for our testing. Now, when it comes to testing, I mean, you and I know this, like all of us when we go to school from kindergarten to grade 12, even college and university, what do we expect at those in, in, in school? We expect tests. We expect them. In fact, if you and I attended a school that didn't test us, although we might enjoy it for a fairly long period of time, we'd probably start to think, what is wrong with this school? This case is kind of like a weird place to attend when we just sort of show up learn, do recess and lunch and then go home. Like, like there's no grading, there's no testing. Like it's just, this is, like again, at first it's fun, but after a while I think this is strange. What a weird school to attend. And the reason we think, we think that way is because we all know what tests are designed to do. If tests provide a means of measurement or evaluation, they let us know where we measure up 
and they reveal where we've matured in terms of our knowledge and understanding in a particular area, but they also reveal areas in which maybe we need to grow or we've fallen short. And it's often in the things that we fail to get right that we actually learn some of the greatest things about moving forward. Well, the same that comes with tests from God as believers. When we suffer for His name's sake, it provides a means of evaluation in terms of our commitment to Him and gives us a plumb line to measure ourselves in terms of spiritual maturity. It reveals where we need to grow and areas where we can celebrate from the changes that have taken place in our lives. Ways we've responded now that we may not have responded to in the past. So again, all, this, all tests are here are designed to bring us into spiritual maturity and it actually reveals to us how close our character are, characters are to Jesus Christ. It reveals this to us. How we do when we suffer for Christ's name is really an instant report card of our spiritual maturity. Can I give you an interesting thought? Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 20. Here's an instant litmus test, a report card, in terms of spiritual growth and how far, how close we are to Jesus Christ in terms of reflecting His character. Look at, look at 20, starting in verse, halfway through. Uh, 20b, as I'd say. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example for you to follow in the steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Alright, so Jesus, in the midst of persecution, being reviled for his faith, uttered no threats, never insulted anyone back, and entrusted himself to God. So, you and I go into a trial, we have a conversation with somebody, we start proclaiming truth, or we have a spiritual conversation with someone, and they start reviling us, insulting us, threatening us, intimidating us, going on, how would you and I do? If we respond like Him, we can walk away grateful that we've, we're like Him. It shows that we've come a long way, because before being a Christian, all of us, no doubt in our minds, flesh-wise, would want to respond negatively to that. If someone insults, forget spiritual things, just think regular things, like, if, like in terms of like, if, you, if someone insults you today, would you respond negatively back to them? It's an instant report card to show where we are in terms of maturity, spiritual maturity. If we don't respond like Jesus Christ, and we, and we, and we, we, we retaliate back, then we can walk away going, okay, I've got more areas to grow. There's more things that, that God needs to heal in my life so that I can respond differently from now on. So the second, that's the first area then. The first area is that suffering and suffering is we can expect it. What's the second? Second, what's found in verse 13, we are to rejoice in trials. So suffering is to be expected. And it's something we're to rejoice over. Look at verse 13. But to the degree that you are shared the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Rejoice is mentioned twice in one verse. 
I don't know about you, but for me, this is an opposite reaction that I would uh, naturally have. In the midst of persecution and suffering, uh, I'd probably want to retreat. I'd want to withdraw. I'd want to give up. And praise would be the last thing on my mouth. But Peter says, Andrew, that's exactly what I don't want you to do. Don't think that way. Instead of being something that throws you off balance, this, these trials, don't let it throw you off balance. Instead, turn it, in an op- turn it into an opportunity for praise to God. Why? Why would we praise Him in that case? Well, I think there's two reasons given right here in our verses. First one is this. If you're willing to suffer for Christ, it proves that you're truly His. If you're willing to suffer for Him, and you can identify with Him, it shows that you truly are His. All you have to do to end suffering in in your life as a Christian, all you have to do is deny Him. And it's over. It's over like that. No more for you. Keep going in pursuit of Christ. It will never end. The fact that one's willing to suffer proves that one is genuinely a Christian and one can rejoice over that. And here's the thing that I think is cemented in verse 13. And I firmly believe this. You and I will never fully appreciate what Jesus did for us and how we suffered unless we share in his experiences. That's why I love this. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? Because if you can relate to him, it changes the way you view him. And unless you're, if you go through life untouched, then what Christ experienced for you is merely theoretical and hypothetical. I was thinking about this, you know, it's, it's not the greatest example because it's, it's sort of like so trite compared to what Christ did, but you'll get the idea that this idea that we, need to, we can't appreciate anything unless we experience it to the full degree. I remember I, as a teenager, I played a lot of tennis and I played a lot, I watched a lot and I was like 15, 16, 17, I used to think, man, I, if I like back then, like the top players were like Boris Becker and like you know uh, John McEnroe just retired and like you know all these like um, Stefan Edberg, all these great players that like some of you might know from the 90s. And I used to think, oh, I bet you if I were to stand there, I could return like maybe one out of every five serves. You know, I used to think like I could I could return a serve or two of those guys because watching on TV doesn't look that hard. And I was playing a lot. I was in tournaments and different things. One day, a guy shows up in our tournament that I was playing in, and an uh, unsuspecting guy, I knew him a bit, and uh, he had this top spin serve that would bounce over my head every game. Everyone else I played would bounce, the serves would bounce around waist height to like under my armpit, and I could return basically all of them. This guy had a top spin serve that everything I had to return was over my head. He blew me out of the water. I lost like 6-1, 6-1 to him and two sets straight. The game was over in about 40 minutes. This is a guy in the rallies I was hitting back and forth with and was equal to him in ground strokes, but didn't know he had this wicked serve that would bounce over my head. You know what I realized? This guy 
has never won a, he never even won the tournament that, that weekend. He had no name in the tennis world. He was just a, he just played for fun. If I couldn't return any of his serves and lost, and the only game I won was on my serve, by the way, how in the world am I going to stand before a professional and actually hit any of those balls back? In hindsight, it was a, I was an idiot to think that. And in hindsight, I wouldn't even have touched the ball, never mind return the ball. I had to experience the humiliation of that in order to understand that I'd have no chance in life in a tennis match against a pro. And I think it's the same for suffering for Jesus Christ. If you experience suffering in the same way as he has, for merely doing what is right, and living a life that's pleasing to God, and speaking truth, you will gain a greater love for him, and appreciate him even more because of what he did for you. Do you see why now you can rejoice? That's why you can rejoice and praise him. I'm like, I get it now. I'm just like you in these things, and you did these things for my benefit. Changes your entire perspective. Isn't Peter good here? But the second reason for rejoicing is because of the future reward that awaits you. Look at verse 13 again. He says, Keep rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Peter, of course, is speaking about the future coming of Christ and His, and his return. So knowing that this life is temporary and that Christ has something better awaiting for you in future, which is His home in heaven, it can result in praise. So Peter's just talked about future rewards here. This hope in heaven, right? This future glory, the coming back of Christ. But he also tells us that there's a present benefit to suffering for Christ's name's sake as well. That's in verse 14. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You know, Peter's done a good job so far in challenging you and I in terms of how to think with regards to persecution, right? We're not to be surprised. It's not strange. We're to rejoice. And here he says, don't see yourselves as cursed by God or abandoned by God. See yourselves as blessed by God. And the blessing here is not future. It's present. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you now. Now. To better understand what this blessing looks like and what this, what, what this reference of his, 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 his Spirit resting on you, we need to go to other places in Scripture to see where God's glory rests. Where does the, where does the Spirit of God's glory rest in the Bible? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, there's something that's referred to as God's Shekinah glory. God's presence is resting upon his people. It occurs many places in the scriptures, but I'll give you just two or three. Do you remember what happened at Mount Sinai? The giving of the Ten Commandments? God's glory was resting on the mountain. A cloud of his radiance in Exodus 24, 16. When, he, when Moses went up to get it, the Ten Commandments, when he came down, his face shone from being in the presence of God and the people recognized him being there with him. How about in Exodus 40 verse 34 
that in the tabernacle, God's Spirit rested above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And a really cool passage is in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11. In the temple, the God's glory in the presence of a cloud filled the temple in 1 Kings 8, so much so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the presence of a cloud of, of God's glory resting in that place. You see what Peter's got in mind here? He's saying this, the way you are blessed by having the Spirit of God rest upon you is to say this, really God's presence is with you. His presence is with you. Don't think you're abandoned in this. <laughs> you're not abandoned in this. You're not cursed by this. He's with you in this. His Spirit rests upon you. It's a picture of God's favor. It's a picture of God's closeness. It's a picture of God's intimacy with you as a person who suffers in this way. But not all suffering produces blessing. There's a kind that doesn't. Begin with me in verse 15. He says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Peter contrasts two types of suffering here. There's suffering for doing what is wrong, and there's suffering for doing what is right. So if an individual, whether you're Christian or not, suffers for committing acts such as uh, murder, stealing, doing evil to people, or being a troublesome meddler, which is a very interesting phrase, that means to be a busybody. That means you're the kind of person that sticks your nose in every single person's business. <laughs> he says this, if you're like that, it makes sense that you suffer because punish, the punishment that comes to you for living out those actions is deserved. It's totally just. However, there's a kind of life that one can live that is, un, that is unfair and undeserved, and that, that's when you purely live a life that is committed to Jesus Christ, a, a life characterized in verse 19 as doing what is right, and then you suffer. In those cases, that is undeserved suffering, but it's suffering nonetheless. So he's saying there's two kinds of suffering, one that, one that is just and one that is unjust. One that comes from doing what is right and one that comes from doing what is wrong. And here's the thing, church, you and I, it's possible for us to get mixed up in worldly behavior. You might think, murder? I can never do that. Uh, do, you know a guy named, do you know a guy by the name of King David? A man after, a, a man after God's own heart? Who did what? Killed Uriah. Went through a bad phase in life. Wasn't thinking right. Went and killed somebody. And not as a, not as a, in an army, not in a war, in just to protect his own butt. And God had to go after him with Nathan. The one I think here, especially though, we have to look out for due to troublesome meddler. <laughs> Ever struggle keeping your nose outside of other people's business? Ever go around causing strife between family members and church community? I mean, it's, it's possible. When this occurs, God has to do something about it. 
Let me pick this up in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Peter's point really is this, church. If God takes it upon himself to administer justice and deal with sin within the church, which are his own people, which is also not exactly fun to experience if you fall under God's uh, discipline, he says, how much more devastating will it be for those outside the church who have intentionally rejected Jesus Christ and disobeyed his gospel truth? Now, within the context, especially those who've brought suffering upon Christian people. And the answer, of course, is rhetorical. The answer is far worse. If God deals with sin in-house, in the church, and he doesn't let us get away with that, then how far, far much more worse is it going to be for those outside the church who don't give up and revolt God and disobey him like crazy? What's the judgment going to be like for them? But here's the thing, he, said, he says in, in verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer. So there's a potential for you to still go back to that way. <laughs> there's, a still, there's a possible for us to, well actually, this is actually good, it's not even in my notes. Okay, Matthew 5. You've heard it said, I shall, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that anyone who's committed, is angry towards his brother, or is slanders another, another person, has committed murder in his heart. Being a troublesome meddler again, all these types of things, it's not hard for us to go back to these ways of life. So Peter's giving us the two ways to live. The two ways to live. Now therefore, because these realistic possibilities exist, verse 19, those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Knowing that these two options are available and God judges in these ways, he's pleading to us, just entrust yourself to the Lord. You'd have to. You'd have to to get through this. It's so easy to go back to the ways of the world. It's so easy to get out of persecution. All you do is deny Christ. He's saying, trust your, give yourself fully. Trust the Lord Give yourself over to him fully and do what is right. Don't go back to the old way. Do what is right. And the concept is really this. It's far better to suffer here and now for the sake of Jesus than to suffer for eternity in hell. Better to suffer here and now and face God's judgment here as a Christian than to suffer, to face God's judgment in the future and suffer for eternity in hell. Those are the two choices of suffering. You're going to suffer one place or the other. Pick. You can see why it takes, us, it takes, us, it takes from us trust in God and entrusting our souls to Him with those two realities. So what can we learn? Well, a change in perspective towards suffering, I hope. Alright, so let's look at these lessons. Lesson one, suffering for the name of Jesus Christ is, one, to be expected. Don't be surprised if this happens to you. 
Don't think it's strange that something's happening to you. It's normal and that not abnormal. Two, suffering from the name of Christ is something to rejoice over. Totally counter, counter to your mindset. It has to be. It's counter to mine. But you know what? If you do this, it reveals that you belong to Him. It also helps you appreciate Him more as you share in the same kinds of sufferings that He did for you and I. And third in that, it's a few, we have a future reward. Rejoice over the future reward. Rejoice over the fact that you are His and you can appreciate Him. Also, suffering for the name of Jesus is to be blessed. You're not abandoned. You're not cursed. The Spirit of God rests upon you. His presence is with you in the midst of those things. Again, counterintuitive to how your flesh will make you feel. Second lesson. The purpose behind tests in a believer's life is to produce spiritual maturity. The purpose behind tests in a believer's life is to produce spiritual maturity. God's not out to get you. He's not going, I'm going to see how much they can fail. He's like, no, 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 there's character issues and I want to pull them out to help them grow, to help them learn, to help them understand, to, be, to, be, to become more like me. They're character tests for our benefit. You know, it's a really cool verse. We're coming to, we're almost, I think we're only two sermons away from being done in this book. Look at uh, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 9. It says, resist, resist the devil, forming your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now watch this. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory up in Christ, watch this, in him will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But I thought I was perfect and confirmed and strengthened and established you. And he's like, not right, not quite. The suffering and the trials will produce even more than it was there before. So again, tests produce spiritual maturity and tests reveal where we're at. This reveal where we're at. Some areas will come out strong with good marks. <laughs> In other places, we're like, uh oh, there's a lot more that needs to be done there. But either way, they're there for our benefit and not to hurt us. Finally, it is better to suffer temporarily for the name of Christ in this lifetime than to reject Him now and have to suffer permanently in hell. It's better to suffer temporarily for the name of Christ in this lifetime than to reject Him now and have to suffer permanently in hell. So let's have a time together and uh, hopefully you've Glean something from Peter's words to you today.